You are Locked On Bucks, your daily podcast on the Milwaukee Bucks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Backs him down. Giannis into the lane. Giannis spinning. Welcome to Locked on Bucks. I'm Eric Name, Milwaukee Bucks reporter at ESPN Wisconsin. Um, let's go with ESPN Shackton for today. Um, as Frank's been telling me, I need to think of all the different ESPN outlets that could possibly be in the state of Wisconsin. Um, so we're going to go with Shackton for today. Frank is not here. Um, it is a, a Thursday, and a lot of times when we're recording on Thursdays, we're going to try to leave Frank out uh, as he we are all aware his uh his wife who happens to be a rockets fan uh just happened to have a child and i don't know if that child is technically a rockets fan or a bucks fan but at this point probably a little bit of both uh but we're trying to give him thursday nights off so instead of frank madden i have i don't even know like a an old acquaintance i think would be the best way to say <laughs> it um i have kale chenard here with me today um you may remember him from we are bucked um, you may also remind her, you may also remember him from behind the Buck Pass, and you may also remember him from Bucksketball. Um, but he is now a writer at Hawks.com, and he's been there for about four years. And uh, we've talked so much about Mike Budenholzer, and I mean, all we can really do is like look at numbers and look at some of the video and like try to break stuff down. But we don't actually cover that Atlanta Hawks, so I figured let's get someone that does. Kale, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for that introduction. That was that was something I appreciate it. <laughs> no problem. You know, I've I've introduced Frank a million times. It's always nice when I get fresh blood and I can uh, not say the same thing <laughs> I do every day. So I'm I'm happy to do it. But um, Kale, I guess. Oh man, I'm trying to figure out exactly where to start. I guess kind of what I want to do here is um, I think there's a, a number of perceptions about Mike Boonholzer that go around Buck's Twitter, and uh, I okay. think at this point there's a lot of things that that people are very comfortable with, and I would like to question the things that I'm most uh, skeptical of on his resume. And maybe that will okay. uh, maybe that's a good way to kind of go through this. I don't really know. I've been trying to figure out how I should format this, but I think that's gonna be the way that we're gonna do it. So um, let's let's start sure. off with something very simple. Um, defense is not really a huge concern for most people. The defense in Atlanta under Mike Budenholzer has been quite good for, uh, I mean, pretty much his entire tenure. Obviously, there's a strong part in the middle, and then maybe at the beginning and end of his tenure, it wasn't quite as pretty, but I I think overall very good. So we'll push that to the side for now. The offense, um, why was it not better outside of the 60-win season? I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the Hawks haven't necessarily had a lot of superstar-level talent. Mm -hmm. I think that makes offenses go over better. I mean, I don't think he's ever had any huge issues offensively. I think they've always run sort of a sound offensive scheme, one that kind of gets the most out of their personnel, but their personnel hasn't necessarily lived up to it. 
<laughs> I, okay, I think they haven't really had that one focal point from which they can play everything off of it. Yeah, if he goes to Milwaukee, I think it'll be a completely different experience for him having Giannis because I don't think he's had anybody like that. He kind of has more five equal parts as opposed to you know a hub and and some you know sprockets off the hub so to speak <laughs> so I, I feel like with him though um i don't really have any concerns about like three-point attempt rate like it seems like they are getting a number of threes they are shooting a bunch of threes is that uh, a wrong assessment that i've made from the outside like it feels like um even though the spurs themselves uh, have been a bit more of a, a retrograde offense in the last few years um that in atlanta they have largely been able to you know take modern type shots like that their shot profile to me looks very modern from the outside would that be accurate as well yeah i think so and it, i think one of the things that maybe is a little bit underplayed is the fact that he's actually gotten more modern after Millsap and horford as opposed to when they were here because you know he's he's become much more of a five out coach than he was when he had them here because horford you know in the 60 win season wasn't really shooting threes like he, that, he, that was one that was a year later that he really started to do that he only really did that for one year okay. the, the year after the 60 win season his last in atlanta was really his first time shooting threes and while he played a lot from the outside it wasn't from way outside he was inside the three-point circle for a lot of the time and as you've seen with Millsap and denver a little bit you know the offense can kind of get a little bit clunky because he needs to play near the mm-hmm. rim Whereas, you know, in the season since Millsap and, and Horford have left, you know, they've gone to centers that really can shoot. I mean, they have Dwayne Dedman looking like a viable three-point <laughs> shooter this year. You know, they had Urson at the four a lot. Um, you know, they play Mike Muscal more than they did uh, when, when Millsap and Horford he, were still here. I mean, Muscal was on the roster then, but he wasn't playing near as much as he is now. Um, and so they play a lot more five out, which really kind of caters well to Schroeder. Um, you know, opens up a lot of driving lanes. Um, maybe Budenholzer didn't get Schroeder to pass quite as much as maybe he should have. But, you know, I think the offense has actually gotten a little bit more sophisticated, a little bit more modern since Horford and Millsap left. They just haven't had the level of talent equal to those two. I think one thing I always kind of worry about with – with Spurs tree folks, and hopefully I can explain this the right way, but anytime I, I feel like someone comes from the Spurs tree, they often tend to think about, you know, just just player and ball movement, and I feel like the league so much has moved towards, you know, high pick and roll and spreading the spreading defense out and then attacking, and uh, obviously Popovich to this day still works through the elbows quite a bit, and obviously in Milwaukee, they had someone from the Popovich tree and Joe Prunty, who was their offensive coordinator and obviously then their head coach uh, in the second half of the season. And uh, I, I just, I, you would get tired of watching the Bucks attempt to enter the ball to the elbow when they have a 6'10", 6'11", rail of a human being in John Henson and then somehow someone <laughs> skinnier in Thon Maker at the elbow. And it was just, it was never going to be actually at the elbow. Like they were going to catch out behind the three point line. And then any action they had off of it was kind of, you know, I mean, it just wasn't going to work. Like it was doomed from the start. Um, you mentioned some of the five out stuff. Do you, do you feel like in recent years, like 
with Schroeder, um, with some of their personnel, like they have moved to more of, you know, high ball screen and some of that stuff, or, or is it more, um, more traditional Spursy type action? I think they probably, I'd have to look up the numbers to check, but I think my hunch is that they do a little bit more pick and roll just because Schroeder's more that type of player mm-hmm. than Teague was. Um, but I would have to double check on that. that that's just kind of a gut instinct. I haven't really looked into that. That's fine. A uh, gut instinct works for me. Like you've been watching the, <laughs> the team. I've watched, I don't know, five Hawks games last year. Like th- there wasn't a ton. So, um, that, I mean, that's fine with me. A gut instinct on that, uh, would be totally fine. So, um, thinking, I guess, offensively, is there anything else? Um, I, I just look at, you know, when I'm looking at points per possession offensively, it just hasn't been as good as the defense. The defense has been, you know, stellar throughout Budenholzer's uh, entire tenure. So kind of the the thing I start to think about is, you know, obviously offensively, maybe you don't have to be the best coach because as we could see this year, the Bucks probably had bottom five schemes in the league and Giannis is just incredible and they were a top 10 offense so i think that might be possible anyways but any other things you you think about when you think about this hawks offense um no i mean even when they run pick and roll and stuff i mean they kind of start with those you know motion touches so they might settle into something from the elbow that turns into a pick and roll or they might just start with something from the top that turns into a pick and roll but even when they do that you know, they're trying to make sure that they're doing that in the context of the larger motion offense. You'll always see them trying to, you know, get those, let's call them horizontal passes up behind the top of the key. So they'll always start with those few touches almost on all possessions. And, you know, sometimes you'll see teams overplay that and maybe disrupt things a little bit. But you know, even when they do variations of pick and roll and, and things like that, I mean, it always seems like it's not just the pick and roll. I mean, they, they, they're trying to do it with some motion on the side. A little camouflage you know, one, to get One of the it. things that he's, that he criticized, one of the things that Bud criticized Teague for, not, you know, an outward, outward criticism, but enough that you'd say, oh, hey, he's saying something here. And he said it for Teague and he said it for Schroeder, is that, you know, one of the things he wanted them to do was to give up the ball and kind of function as a cog in the motion offense. Give, it, give up the ball, go through the motions of the offense and then come back and get it again. And, you know, he said it uh, for Teague at times a few years ago. He, he said it about Schroeder last year. And by last year, I don't mean this most recent one, but the one mm-hmm. before that. But, he, you know, he wanted them to be better players off the ball. And I, I think T got to that point a little bit, uh, maybe Schroeder not as much. <laughs> uh, from the, the Hawks games I could, I've seen, I could I could imagine maybe Schroeder not quite getting to that same level of comfort uh, with that. Um all right, let's move to, I guess, the defensive side of the ball. Um, I think when you look at points per possession and kind of how this team has fared defensively, I don't think you have really a ton of questions outside <laughs> of this past year. Like they've, they've been quite good other than this year, and when I look at their roster, well, I think I probably get it. Um, I would assume that would be much of your, your same synopsis of this team that this past year, you, you, they just didn't really have the defenders to have a defense that was going to perform well. That's fair, but I do think that there are some questions. Okay. I, I, I don't think it's it's easy to just say, oh, he's had good defenses. I mean, 
so you know if we're counting seasons let's say starting from the 60 win season because the year before that Horford was hurt so that was kind of an anomaly um and that was Bud's first season when Horford was hurt so that 60 win season was the first real full season for Bud and Horford together and they had a very good defense but it was a very aggressive trappy defense okay and as a result in that season, even though they won 60 games, they led the league. I want to say they led. Maybe it was maybe they were second, but I'm pretty sure they led the league in opponent three-point attempts. Okay. Just because they were playing so aggressively to the ball, they were giving up a lot of attempts. And so, you know, that didn't really hurt them in the regular season, but in the playoffs, it was disastrous. Yeah, and, and, and I'm looking at the numbers right it was now. It, two years in a row against Cleveland because it, it wasn't just once; it actually happened twice. Yeah, no, and I'm looking at the numbers. It was the most three point attempts in the in the 14 15 season. Um, all they led in all threes, uh, 29th in corner threes and 28 in non corner threes, and uh, led in all threes overall. So, um, okay, that was one of the questions I wanted to ask. Like, uh, I look at that year, and then in subsequent years that it still exists, how did they manage to have put together solidish defenses without that? Because in Milwaukee, the Bucks gave up a million corner threes um, <laughs> right alongside them, and things didn't go quite as well uh, defensively. In the 14-15 season, it did work out. Um, but in the other seasons, no, it didn't. It did not work out at all for the Bucks. Yeah, uh, for starters, you know, you were talking about uh, Henson and Thon McCare before, and you were talking about how skinny they are, and maybe that affects their defense a little bit. But if you look at Millsap and Horford, they're just magnificent defensive players. So regardless of scheme, they're going to make some things work. And I think, you know, even now, it's not like this is a singular point in time. The league has evolved a little bit from now compared to 2014-15. So in 2014-15, in that regular season, that trapping defense worked. I mean, they forced a lot of turnovers and they did it with defenders that are really good. You know, horse Horford's a really good defender and, and Millsap and Cephalosha, you know, those are magnificent defensive players. And most of the other defenders were, you know, good quality. Carroll's a good defender. Corver's a good defender. Teague, that was his best defensive season. I think, um, you know, he's had other seasons maybe that weren't as good, but that he that season he was he was clicking, and so they had a lot of good defenders playing a, a good scheme, turning teams over when I think teams weren't as ready to face those trapping kind of defenses yep. as they are now, and and so it kind of worked in the regular season and for part of the playoffs, and you know part of the playoff failure was was injuries, but I think part of it was uh, that Cleveland just buried them with threes because. Atlanta helped, helped, and overhelped, and they just got all you know an all-you-can-eat buffet of threes and uh, two years in a row. Especially the second season, I think it was disappointing because they were healthier, uh, but but it came back to bite them. And I get so I'm trying to think how to. I think one thing that I've been thinking about this entire time is I've been a little bit surprised to see Bucks fans as excited about Budenholzer as they are because of those same similarities. Like I I would think I know certainly as I've covered games, I've gotten tired of seeing a barrage of corner threes. Um, that, that isn't something that uh, I think as you're watching the team and then you're hearing the coaching staff after games and the players say, you know, I've got to stop giving up corner threes. And in my brain, I'm saying, 
will then stop giving up corner threes. Like you can control that. <laughs> like if you actively don't run this scheme, you could control that. And now to see another coach who whose defense is leaning a little bit more aggressive uh, and who lean towards a style where they're giving up corner threes. Like, I just feel like, like that's a concern. Do you, do you feel as though they've, I don't found a happy medium in, in a spot where they have been able to give up corner threes, but also still apply pressure, disrupt action, like do enough good stuff there. Or was it really just, Hey, we had Horford and Millsap. Uh, and then until this past year, we have Millsap. So those guys can just kind of make stuff work at the rim and in all the other areas and rebound well, and like it'll be fine. So so where's where's your head at on that and just kind of like how that's developed over time? Because the corner three has taken on, you know, such an important mantle. Like it, it is on a, on a very clear pedestal in the NBA at this point. I don't know if I'm going to exactly answer your question here, but I mean, I think I would be, I would, I wouldn't necessarily be pessimistic, pessimistic about Budenholzer, you know, being just sort of kid continued and being sort of a continuation of what the Bucks did on defense, because I think that they have shown some wrinkles, you know, I don't think there was a, at times maybe there was kind of this stubborn rigidity to it, but I think there's also been some flexibility. So for example, Let's say this is this would have been last postseason. The Hawks lost in six to the Wizards, and so this is a roster with Dwight Howard, Paul Millsap, Ursan Ilyasova. Those were basically the three bigs that they used, okay. and so and they were playing against the Wizards. So you know the two main things they were worried about was John Wall, Bradley Beal, and so what they did, at least in my eyes, what they did in the postseason was they got away from the over-aggressive defense. And so what they did instead was they kind of ran like two units. One would have been a unit with Millsap, Hor- uh, Millsap Howard. And when Howard was on the floor, they were playing a very spursy defense. They were letting Howard just kind of sit in the paint, mm-hmm. you know, a drop pick-and-roll coverage, just kind of waiting back like Pau Gasol has done in some of the playoffs recently. And, you know, for Howard's skill set, playing against that team, that was – probably the right call i mean he never looked comfortable trying to be the trappy defender you know he he didn't do what horford did they needed to do things differently and and bud adjusted accordingly wall didn't kill him in the mid-range game but beal did but you know given that he was playing howard you know that was probably the right call and he showed that flexibility to be able to change it and you know the reason the hawks lost was probably you know had nothing to do with that pick and roll coverage but more the fact that Howard just couldn't keep up with the pace of the game. Mm-hmm. It fast breaks either way. He was just, he was behind. And at the same time, when Howard went out of the game in that series, they would play Jose Calderon and Ursan Ilyasova with some of these, you know, with Millsap yeah. and Schroeder, and they would switch things. They were playing a very switchy defense, and that kind of helped cover for Calderon. Um, you know, Ursan kind of managed things as best he could. <laughs> And that was definitely the better unit in the playoffs, um, and, and it worked pretty well for them. They, you know, they lost in six, but that series could have easily gone the other way with a few bounces, I think, and and it would have been on the strength of that switching unit that they had out there with Calderon and Urson. Interesting. I think that I don't want to say totally uh, quells any of my concerns, but 
I mean, I think just the idea of uh, kind of watching the Bucks for years and years and years, like run the exact same scheme um, with with tweaks. Like, don't get me wrong, I don't want someone to hear this and right. say like, "Oh, the Bucks didn't run the exact." <laughs> sure, they didn't run the exact same thing, um, but it was very similar throughout with uh, relatively minor tweaks. So um, th- that makes me feel a little bit better. Other thing, I'm I'm looking at right now i look at the uh defensive rebound rate um not great for the hawks under mike Boonholzer. um and again i I, we had frank and i always mention this like i'm on cleaning the glass right now and just looking for red and blues and one of the reds (laughs) that i see uh when i look at the the four factors stuff hawks not great defensive rebounding um the Bucks. So is that are you talking about for this season? Yeah, this season and then in the past, not like twentieth, twenty sixth, twenty first, like not in probably the spot I would feel super comfortable with uh, defensive rebounding wise. Um, do you feel like it's more? Uh, as I watch the Bucks, I've seen a scheme that just takes them out of position to rebound the ball defensively, and thus we've seen the Bucks struggle uh, with that. Do you feel like there's some scheme elements that keep guys from rebounding? Because, I mean, like with Dwight Howard, I feel like he just sucks up a bunch of those. Um, so maybe that that has helped out uh, in the past. But I guess, do you have any thoughts on, um, I know throughout this season, we've seen Bucks teams uh, in Bucks games where it just feels like they give up offensive rebound after offensive rebound and possessions never end. Obviously, we saw that in the playoffs as well with the Celtics. Um, so I'm curious, is that something that you feel like is a problem or maybe are the numbers overstating that a little bit? I think it's, you know, if if you go over the past four years, I think it, the causes vary a little bit. I think, you know, if you go to the Horford-Millsap group, you know, it was kind of a mix of personnel. They were a little bit on the small side with Horford-Millsap, but also a lot of it was the positioning. They were playing so aggressively. Mm-hmm. In the, in the pick and roll styles of defense that it was taking them out of position in a lot of cases. So, you know, I think if you look at sort of the, the first two, let's say 2014-15 and then 2015-16, that was part of it. And I think they got a little bit better with Dwight, but then this past season, I think a lot of it was just personnel. Mm, that makes sense. You know, they're playing Collins, who had a – he's just marvelous in a lot of ways. Uh, and he's a marvelous offensive rebounder. Like he's going to be a great offensive rebounder. But what pick did they get him with? 19. Oh man, man! What number did the Bucks? Oh, seventeen. Yeah, DJ Wilson yeah. didn't look quite as good as him this year. No. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, uh, just so, just need to get so that yeah. He, he was like he had marvelous touch in the paint, and he was a magnificent offensive rebound and you could just see him growing over the course of the season he's just not that big and strong and they were playing him at center a lot and he's kind of a tweener um, and so young that he just kind of got pushed out of the way a lot he got when the nba had their box out data up uh, he was getting a lot of box outs but uh, just from an overall team rebounding perspective i don't think it went that well when he was out there so i think this year was, was a lot of personnel but I think if you go back a few years, yeah, I think you could you could tie some of the rebounding problems to scheme in a very similar manner to what you see we've seen with the Bucks. Okay, um, I'm trying to think through any other questions I have for the defense. I feel like overall, I, I, I think the larger I, the lar- no, no, one, one thing that's sort of a separate thing is that you know, he really preaches the transition defense. So I, you know. When if when you're looking at numbers that include transition defense, I think that's something that they've been strong at 
historically with Bud in the fold. So that I think that boosts their overall numbers in a lot of ways that, that maybe the half court drags them down, but the transition picks them up. That I think that would make some sense. And like I'm looking at their offensive rebound numbers and those are very low, which would obviously suggest like the the priority um and i guess that's kind of in a very spursian manner right like you, you're gonna get back in transition and make sure um that you do that and it's funny uh to think that that was always like a rule for the bucks i remember the rule for them was if you're not inside the three-point line when the shot goes up you get back and yet watching the bucks play transition defense you would you would guess the exact opposite because they had no idea what they're doing in transition. So I would assume uh, Mike Boonholzer will coach that just slightly better um, than what we saw in Milwaukee this past year. Um, anything else you're thinking about like X's and O's wise or, or kind of just on the floor stuff? I, I wanted to get it a little bit into, you know, the idea of coaching a superstar like you will and Giannis. And I want to get into kind of some of the personnel stuff and kind of how all of that went down, but anything else X's and O's wise uh, you're thinking about Kale? Maybe this is a good bridge topic, but I think this season they kind of played pick and roll their usual way. And then, I want to say around January or February, it felt like with Collins, especially when they had Collins on the floor, they were doing a little bit more drop coverage. And so I asked Bud a question. I don't know that I worded it greatly, but what I was trying to get at was, you know, at that point in the season, I think we kind of knew what the Hawks' fate was going to be anyways. So I kind of tried to say, you know, are you switching your pick and roll coverages just to try to get some variety, just so that some of these young kids see approaching the game different ways. You know, we've played it a certain way where we try to, you know, help and recover, help and recover. And that was such a big thing. But then, you know, midseason, it seemed like they were trying to do some more drop pick and roll coverages. And I wanted to ask him, you know, is it important that they see different coverages just as a learning tool where maybe you pick some coverages that aren't even necessarily optimal just with the idea that let's try it because we want the kids to learn it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I asked him if learning one coverage was harder than another. And he just kind of, he kind of brushed the question off. <laughs> okay. So, but, you know, I think that was kind of revealing too. It's like, you know, this season, let's say after the demotion, because he was president of basketball operations until this season. It's like, you know, just in terms of his demeanor, he seemed, you know, happier, a little bit more willing to joke, a little bit more easygoing. And at the same time, he was a little bit more protective of the process or he didn't want to get into the process of hashing things out. He was always really good about explaining his line of thinking when he would do things in the first few years. And then this year it was a lot of, Oh, coach's decision, coach's decision. Mm. You'd ask about motivation and just, I don't know. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't like a personal thing. Like he was, he seemed to be, you know, kind of chipper and in a good mood, but just, didn't want to get into how the sausage was made as much this season as he was in some of the past seasons. Interesting. I'm, I don't know. I'm trying to think, so, I'm trying to think of how to interpret that because I've for the last four years, uh, enjoyed the artistic stylings of Jason Kidd. Um, and that, I mean, it's pretty rare that he would talk much about how the sausage was made. Um, so there was part of me that got excited. And then the last part of me, as you explained this year, did not get quite as excited. Um, but interesting. I need to think about that. I don't know if I and have I guess any thoughts on it I, yet. Since we're saying that, maybe I should clarify a little bit that, you know, that was in the press conference, open media availability setting. I just think as an overall openness, maybe not as much because like right now, 
my mind is a little bit blown because we're doing media availability for workouts, which we never had under Ferry or Budenholzer. We didn't, you know, we didn't do the hey, these guys are coming in to work out. If you want to mm-hmm. talk to them at the end of the workout, come over. It was you don't even get a list. You don't know who they work out. There's no media availability, you know. And that was just, I think that's just a little bit symbolic of the different approaches to things. But I think, you know, Ferry and Budenholzer both they were very kind of close to the vest, okay. not just with sort of open media availability, but even like, you know, talking, you know, I don't, there weren't a lot of rumors about the Hawks that ever felt like they were coming from the Hawks side. Mm. Like every, It always seemed like when there was a rumor about the Hawks, it was like, Oh, that team, that's the other team in the rumor leaked it. It always seemed like it was, yeah. it, it never seemed like something that the Hawks would have leaked. They always seemed to be very close lipped, kind of keep it in house so to speak. Okay. Now I, now I'm going to be up all night trying to figure out, uh, if bud comes to town, how that might go, but that's okay. That's, that's a me problem. I'll, I'll sort that out. Um, all right. So one of the things that I've been interested in is obviously, uh, bud had, uh, president of basketball operations and personnel control. And then he, he no longer had that uh, in his final season here in Atlanta. And I, I feel like there's, there's kind, there was kind of an idea floated to me from Bucks fans that, um, and I don't even know where it started, but they were just like, well, you know, Budenholzer didn't have to give up that control. Like he, he kind of ceded that control and was cool with it and was cool with it's Travis Schlank, I believe coming in. He's like, and it's been, you know, it was a good process. Like he was able to handle it. So there shouldn't be a problem when he comes to Milwaukee. And, um, I guess just one of the things I've been thinking about, and we talked about this earlier this week, like when he comes in, if John Horst's salary remains the same, uh, Mike Budenholzer would be making 14 times as much <laughs> as, as John Horst, which uh, um, as somewhat, I mean, I, I'm not going to say that uh, the organizational chart would get screwed up because of that, but just knowing what I know about money, I would be, uh, I'd be shocked if it didn't because uh, I, I think to a certain extent money talks and certainly 14 times as much money talks. Um, so I, I guess, uh, how do you feel about, or I guess, can you just kind of walk everyone through like what happened in Atlanta? Like, how he got the the personnel control uh, because I know that was kind of a messy situation, and then then how he ultimately relinquished uh, player personnel control it, just to give everyone a timeline so they understand kind of how all of that went because they're not Hawks fans. Yeah, so when the whole fairy thing went down, they lost their main basketball decision maker. I believe Ferry was still you know technically in the employ of the Hawks, but he wasn't. I don't think he was making, you know, he, they were trying to sort it all out. Mm-hmm. And there was a whole separate ownership issue, you know, that the team was for sale. And so it was just kind of, okay, make do. And so the process of making do was, the way Bud posed it, at least, was that it was sort of decision by committee. It was, you know, I think the two main voices would have been um, his voice and Wes Wilcox's voice. Uh, Wes Wilcox at the time was the assistant GM, Bud was the head coach. And I think there were some other voices in there as well. Some of the other uh, people on the administrative side and they had a former GM in Rick Sund who was an advisor who was around. And so 
you know, when we would ask Bud about how the basketball decisions were being made, he would say, oh, you know, well, you know, when we have ideas, we, we talk it out and we come to a collective decision. And, you know, he couched it in the the Spursian, uh, you know, we'll come to a consensus, we'll talk it out, and, and then we'll move on. And so it was hard to get a real good feel mm-hmm. of what they were doing. But, I mean, I think they did some of the right decisions. I mean, they, they – they had Adrian Payne in his rookie season for a few months. It wasn't working out. They they traded him to Minnesota, and I think in hindsight that was a good move. And and then in the next off season, they they traded for Tim Hardaway on draft night. And you know this was when Corver had a broken ankle, Cephalosha had a broken ankle, um, Carroll had a bad knee, and wasn't coming back anyways because he was going to be a free agent, and they were going to keep Millsap over Carroll. So. They didn't have a lot of wings, and so they made that trade for Hardaway, uh, and they had to do it at the time when they were very cap-strapped because they were trying to keep Millsap. So they had to find a young wing who was healthy, who had a very low salary, and you know they swung that deal for Hardaway, and they gave up the pick that became Oubre. But you know, given the circumstances at the time with how awful the wing situation was looking on a team that still had Millsap and Horford and wanted to compete, that I think that was a good trade, and. I mean, I think they were making good decisions and, you know, right around the same time there. And I'm not sure if this was a couple of months before the Hardaway trade or after, but that's when, you know, Bud was installed as president of basketball operations. Mm-hmm. Wes Wilcox became GM, but, you know, you know, Budenholzer was the top name uh, in terms of he's the president of basketball operations. So, you know, that's <laughs> the decisions were, were going through him. And, you know, it, it's kind of a tricky deal because... You know, he was coaching. He didn't have the time to do the college scouting. I think Wes had a lot of input into the, the drafts that, that he did a good job with, but that that's what it was at that point. So then once all of this – so when they bring in Travis Schlank, like how does, how does that end up getting sorted out? I can't say any of this with 100% certainty, but it feels like you know, there was some tug and pull between, you know – do the Hawks need to rebuild? Do they need to keep on their current path? And mm-hmm. so, you know, this was happening around the trade deadline when they were trying to figure out what to do with impending free agents to be Kyle Korver and Paul Millsap. And evident, you know, eventually they did trade Korver and they didn't trade Millsap. And the Korver trade actually happened first, and they decided not to trade Millsap afterwards. So there was this, there was this tug and pull between are we rebuilding or not? And, you know, the Corver trade, you know, they got a top 10 protected first round pick for a 36-year-old free agent to be. Um, you know, and they weren't doing anything last season. So that, you know, that's a pretty good pick. But then they decided, hey, we'll we'll keep uh, Millsap. And so I, I don't think that Budenholzer and Wilcox necessarily saw eye to eye on whether they should rebuild or not. And my guess is you know that that Budenholzer was thinking along the lines of not rebuilding and Wilcox was but uh that's impossible yeah, don't know. don't go quoting me and, yeah. and putting me yeah I don't want to be cited in blog you know you read <laughs> the, the people that say you know don't put that in a blog don't cite that I mean that's just just that's a general feel it's yeah. not like yeah reporting or anything like that but I, I think there was a tug and pull with those two voices over whether to rebuild or not and you know I think ownership knew there was that tug and pull, and so I think that's the beginning of how we uh, we got to having Travis Schlenk as 
president of basketball operations, if that's his title. Yeah, no. I, He's I, the main basketball decision maker, but I don't know what the exact title is. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. I guess the reason why it's all interesting is because, uh, I, as I laid out, like you think the one thing I've been hammering this entire kind of decision process has been organizational hierarchy and like how does all of this work out and who's in control and how do they work together and how do they work separately and all of those things. So um, I just wanted to get a little bit of perspective on kind of how all of that um, would work out. All right, um, last thing. And this is something that I know I'd kind of asked you about before we started the conversation. Um, a few days ago, we were kind of going back and forth on this. And I guess, what is the the general vibe players have had of Mike Budenholzer? And I know that I think I've read a couple quotes from maybe Kyle Korver, I want to say, Demari Carroll, possibly. I can't remember who it was. Um, but generally they seem very positive they seem to feel as though uh Budenholzer kind of finds a, a nice spot in uh pushing them hard and holding people accountable and doing all those things and the reason why I ask is because I feel like if he gets to coach Giannis it would be the first time he gets to coach a, a true superstar like there were some good players in Atlanta don't get me wrong wait but, does Dwight Howard count Ooh, that's a great question um I would say no, not that version not, of Dwight Howard. Maybe, maybe not at that point. Okay, uh, but still, that's I, I, I think that plays into this as well. Like that is a very strong personality. Um, so how that worked out, I would be interested in as well. Like I, I guess, just what's the the general vibe you get from players? Like is is Coach Bud a hard ass? Like is he someone that is just not going to take any guff from nobody? Um, like how how do you? How have you seen kind of players react to him and what have players said about him? Well, maybe to lay out a thesis statement first, he's he's said that he's very process-oriented over results-oriented. So we'll start there. And so, you know, they went, when, when Budenholzer was here and he was the basketball decision maker, they got on the track of, hey, get a D-League team, get a practice mm-hmm. facility. You know, he they wanted to do the things, you know, as soon as ownership was, as soon as the new ownership took over, and Budenholzer was installed as the president of basketball operations. You know, he was trying to get things in place to make it a professional outfit. You know, make it so that they had the best of everything, including you know they kind of stole the crew from Golden State. That I guess this is loosely paraphrasing, but put Steph's ankle back together. <laughs> okay, <laughs> right? They yeah. they went and got that that uh, you know physical performance training staff. They got a lot of of the Golden State crew here. So, you know, between that and the G League team and the practice facility, he was really trying to, you know, get things so that they had what they needed to be a good outfit. But beyond that, you know, when you hear former players talk about Bud, they always gush about him. Like Damari Carroll, you know, Bud was at his wedding. It's right around the time when Carroll was a free agent and about to sign with the Raptors. Mm -hmm. It was either a couple weeks before, a couple weeks after, but. Um, you know, Bud was at what has was at his wedding when it was pretty clear that Carol wasn't going to be coming back. I mean, he just you know, Baysmore will will gush about him. I've seen people like Lamar Patterson gush about him. I really haven't heard a whole lot of people say bad things about him. You know, they they really you know they really do like him. And at the same time, you know, I've I've heard enough of you know practices to know that he's a bit of a hard ass too. <laughs> like, they love him, but. Yeah. It's not because he's a big pushover, you know. I've, I've, I've heard some stuff, and it's like, oh my goodness, he said that, you mm-hmm. know. But um, 
they like him. Uh, you know, he's as, as hard as he'll push, and you know, he'll push some buttons. Um, at the end of the day, I think he genuinely cares, and he finds a way to try to care and take care of his players, and they've responded. I mean, I think almost to a man, his former players will say good things about him. You said Dwight Howard. Dwight Howard, how did that go? Because I feel like, again, I don't think Dwight Howard and Giannis are all that well-related, but um, I think you'll have... Uh, personalities like Dwight Howard uh, from time to time. Uh, you brought him up, so that must mean there was something uh, there that you were thinking about. Oh, I was just making a Dwight Howard joke because you said superstar. <laughs> okay. Um, no, I don't know. No, no I that's mean, perfect. Maybe that would be the player who wouldn't. I don't know. I mean, yeah. I don't think... At the same time, though, I mean, I think if if Dwight Howard was... You know, if he was, gonna, if he was going to knock somebody that was here from his time here, it might be a teammate as opposed to... But I don't even think yeah. that... Okay. He would say bad things about Bud necessarily. So I, I don't think there's – he may not gush about Bud, but I don't even think that that's uh, – I don't think that he would say bad things about Bud either, to be honest. Interesting. I would have thought maybe there was some bad blood there. Okay, that's good. I mean, um, I think that's more – I mean, Dwight hasn't – I don't know. I mean, I guess Dwight's had some rough exits from other teams <laughs> yes, besides the Hawks. Yes. That's fair to say. But I think he had a good relationship with assistant coach Darvinham too. Mm-hmm. Um they they had been together in Los Angeles before they were together here. I don't I don't know. I mean, he might be the one thing that he might have uh, something to say with maybe that he wasn't happy with his postseason role. But to be honest, you know, if he was unhappy with his postseason minutes because he was bad in the postseason, <laughs> he should have played better. <laughs> you know, what do you want Bud to do there? Right? Yeah. So I don't know. Okay. Um, I think I hit, I've hit on everything that I wanted to hit on. Anything else you, you have, uh, any, any closing thoughts? I feel like the big, the big takeaway for me is, um, a number of the things that I had questions about, uh, you answered. I think there's still some things I'm a little bit, uh, a little bit leery of, um, especially on the defensive side of the ball with the aggressiveness and, uh, some of the defensive rebounding and the scheme stuff. But, I think overall, I'm pretty pleased with how this went, and I think I got all the information I wanted out of you. Uh, so anything else you want to add? Maybe one one leftover is I think uh, again, don't hold me to this as being uh, sworn testimony, but I want to say that the Hawks assistant coaches are still under contract. So, like with these open workouts, they've had I've seen every single of one of the assistant coaches at least in the room during these workouts. Oh, man, that's a shot through the heart for a lot of Bucks fans. They were thinking Darvin Ham was coming with. Well, I mean, that that, that doesn't necessarily mean that, <laughs> that Darvin Ham wouldn't come. And, in fact, if somebody was going to come, I mean... He was just, the lead assistant, right? He's the lead assistant, but he's also... I. And, again, this is just kind of me generalizing, but mm. he always seemed to be the guy who's the veterans coach, like he was mm. the coach for Howard, you know, he always seemed to be the guy interacting with Howard and Millsap, just kind of, I don't know. I always got a sense that he was more the older guys coach than the younger guys coach. And there aren't a whole lot of older guys left in Atlanta. Yeah. that would So, be. I mean, uh, you know, maybe that wouldn't be a shock if he wins. And I mean, I get the sense that, you know, the assistant coaches for the Hawks are still on the staff. Yeah. But, you know, I think it's going to ultimately be the decision of the person that they hire to be the head coach. 
So I think, uh, you know, some of the assistants may or may not be back. It's going to be interesting to say. I think they have a lot of talented assistants. I think they have a good player development staff. And uh, it'll be interesting to see if Budenholzer takes a job, if any of them go with him. Okay. Another thing to keep a a lookout on for. Um, All right. I think that should be about it. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on again. Uh, I'm going to introduce, I'm going to reintroduce you here. This, this was uh KL Chouinard, uh, who was joining us, uh, formerly one of our very good friends from the Bucks blogosphere, uh, as he was at behind the buck, behind the buck pass, uh, Bucksketball. Originally we are bucked, which I just love. Um, and even though I never got to read anything there, just the fact that it existed, um, I, I love, but he's been in Atlanta for the last four or so years uh, and a writer at hawks.com. Kale, thank you so much for joining us and giving us the inside scoop on Mike Boonholzer. Sure thing. Thank you.